Good afternoon or good morning on the verge of being good afternoon. I'm uh, Eddie Glaude. I am the past president of the American <laughs> Academy of Religion. Uh, I keep saying that with a smile. Uh, welcome to this uh, uh, presidential plenary. It's the last of, I think, a, of a really successful conference. Uh, our theme this year has been religion and the most vulnerable. And it seems only right that we will, that we should close out uh, our, our time together uh, with our speaker today. So it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Linda Sarsour, an, an award-winning racial justice and civil rights activist, a seasoned community organizer, and more importantly, a mother of three. I've witnessed up close her extraordinary courage in challenging this country to live up to the principles of democracy, in fearlessly facing down hatred, bigotry, and patriarchy, and in offering a bold democratic vision for the country we hope to be. Linda shatters stereotypes of Muslim women while also treasuring her religious and ethnic heritage. She is a Palestinian Muslim American and a self-proclaimed, quote, pure New Yorker, born and raised in Brooklyn, end quote. She is the former executive director of the Arab American Association of New York and co-founder of the first Muslim online organizing platform, Empower Change. Uh, Linda has been at the forefront of major civil rights campaigns, including calling for an end to unwarranted surveillance of New York's Muslims' communities and ending police policies like stop and frisk. In the wake of the police murder of Mike Brown, in the wake of the police murder of Mike Brown, she co-founded Muslims for Ferguson, to build solidarity amongst Muslim American communities and encourage work against police brutality. She's a member of the Justice League NYC, and those of us who know what that means, we know they've been putting in work. A leading NYC force of activists, formerly incarcerated individuals and artists working to reform the New York Police Department and the criminal justice system, she is a fearless fighter who isn't afraid to speak truth to power, to speak truth to friends who dare sit on the sidelines. Linda also co-chaired the March to Justice, a 250-mile journey on foot to deliver a justice package to end racial profiling, demilitarize police, and demand that government invest in young people and communities. She was instrumental in the Coalition for Muslim School Holidays to push New York City to incorporate two Muslim high holy days uh, in the New York City public school calendar. Currently, as a result of her work and others, New York City is now the largest school system in the country to officially recognize these holidays. And most recently, she was the national co-chair of the Women's March on Washington, dubbed the largest single-day protest in U.S. history, a march that continues to change the political landscape of this country. It wasn't simply a political performance. It was a brilliant strategic mobilization that we are only beginning to see its effects. Now, she has received numerous awards and honors, including Champion of Change by the White House. Not this one. Not this one. <laughs> Not this one. The YWCA USA's Women of Distinction Award for Advocacy and Civic Engagement. The Hala uh, Maksud Leadership Award from the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. 
the Andrew Young Foundation's Annual International Leaders Award. You see the scope, the Shirley Chisholm Award by the New York City Council and recognized by the NAACP New York State Conference, among other awards. She was named among 500 of the most influential Muslims in the world, 50 of the world's greatest leaders by Fortune magazine, and featured on Time's 100 lists of the world's most influential people. To have this prophetic voice speak to this academy right now, and under the current circumstances, to, is critically important. We are struggling here in the academy with our own issues. And the recent decision by the executive committee to postpone a session on BDS has deepened some divides. But we remain committed to having the difficult conversations asking the hard questions, and struggling together for a better world. What I know for sure is that Linda Sarsour is on the front lines for that better world. And no matter the criticisms and the threats, she continues to flight fight without flinching. So members of the Academy, I present to you Linda Sarsour. Thank you. Good afternoon. Is it afternoon yet? It's almost afternoon. I am just so deeply honored and humbled and grateful uh, to be here. And just, hum I mean, Dr. Eddie is a man with such great integrity and dignity. And I fight because I know there are people that are like him who got my back who are people who understand the connections between religion and practicality and what we are called to do in this moment. And I congratulate him on his tenure here at AAR, and I'm pretty sure he's glad he's going on to do something else, but I want, to, I want him to know how grateful we are to have had a strong, powerful black man at the head of AAR. So, I'd like to start with some disclaimers because that's important and make sure that goes in the video. I'm not a theologian and I'm not an Islamic scholar. I am a Muslim who is moved by my faith to work towards social justice. And I wanna make some things very clear in this room. I am unapologetically Muslim American. I am also unapologetically Palestinian American. I am an unapologetic progressive, and I am an unapologetic woman leading in this country. And I'm here today because what I'm known for, and I think it's my Brooklyn plus my Palestinian together, God gave me a lot. I'm a lot. Is I want to be honest. And I think that the reason why we find ourselves as a country in the situation that we are in is that we don't want to have the courageous and honest conversations. And I'm not going to lie to you, but I struggle with people of faith, and in particular those from my own faith. And I ask myself often, I say, do these people believe in the same God that I believe in? What does their faith actually call them to do? What is the purpose of faith? And we are in a really critical moment in modern history in our generation and in my generation. And the way that I choose to show up in this moment 
is as an unapologetic Muslim. And I hear often, and I heard at this convention, a lot of people say, you know, Islam is a religion of peace. And that's important. And I believe truly that all religions are religions of peace and that they were brought to this earth to bring peace among the people. I believe that. But that's actually not what moves me about Islam. I'm not moved to act because Islam is a religion of peace. I am moved to act because Islam is a religion of justice. I am taught as a Muslim that I am to stand up against injustice even if it's against my own parents. And that my beloved Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him, was a human rights activist. And when we are taught about his adab and his characteristics and his mannerisms, what stands out to me, what resonates for me is that he was a man who chose to be amongst the poor. He was a feminist in his own right, in the way that I define him. I don't care how opposition and those who are hostile to Muslims define him. I see him as a man who was a staunch supporter of the education of women. I saw him as an environmental justice advocate who taught us that God gave us the trees and the water and the earth and that we are to be stalwarts of the earth. I believe wholeheartedly that my beloved prophet was an immigrant rights activist, that he taught about the welcoming of the strangers into the communities that, in which that he lived at the time. I also believe that my beloved prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him, was an anti-racist activist. It was very clear to me from understanding him and learning about his stories and his life that he was very specific and clear to those at the time that white people or people with white skin were not better than black people and that Arab were not better based on, the, on your geographic presence or who you are and how you grew up and that was very clear to me. So for me I am moved by those parts of my religion, both my prophet and my holy book that has taught me to be the person that I am today and to do the work that I do every single day. I struggle with people of faith because I wonder if people see what I see. And I'm not saying this to say that there are no people of faith who are at the front lines. There are a couple of superstars and I can name them. But what I'm talking about is an actual mass mobilization of people with a higher moral ground, of millions of folks who attend congregations around the country mass mobilizing in this moment. I don't like to talk about Donald Trump because what outraged me about this election wasn't the fact that we put a sexist, misogynist, racist, sexual predator in the White House. Now, mind you, that's a good reason to be outraged. And if you were outraged about that, that's great. But you know what outraged me on November 9th? I was outraged by the outrage. I was outraged by people who were never outraged by the racism, misogyny, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia that was there way before there was ever a Donald Trump. And it took one man to embody the diseases that have plagued this nation from the days of its founding. So I was outraged that because people weren't directly impacted, they turned a blind eye and then all of a sudden, when they felt a little personally hurt, when their little feelings were hurt, all of a sudden, people were outraged. So that's the outrage that I had. I was outraged at the outrage. And then a lot of people of faith said, we're gonna trust in God and maybe it's not gonna be as bad. And I may be preaching to the choir, maybe not. 
But let me just give you a taste of what has happened just in the past 10 months. This administration has rescinded DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, a program that puts 800,000 young people in our country at fear of deportation, by extension their families. In fact, they were actually safer when they were in, undocumented before DACA because at least the government didn't have all their information and their addresses and their names of their family members. The increased deportation forces that are out in full force across this country, including a 900% increase in arrests of people going to normal court appointments in places like New York City, which is supposed to be one of the most progressive cities in America that apparently has laws about how we interact with ICE. In fact, today we have a man in our own community in New York City, Brother Riaz, who right now is sitting with an immigration officer at 26 Federal Plaza, who has a wife who has cancer, and two American citizen-born children who are waiting for him outside on the streets of New York City to see if their father is going to come back out as they asked him to bring a one-way ticket to Bangladesh. The inhumanity of separating a man from his family who has lived here peacefully for 37 years in this country is something that we should all be outraged about. The stripping of our health care. How many times do they have to attempt to strip us of our health care and leave people in this country without basic sisters and brothers? We live in the United States of America. We should not be standing in a country fighting for our right for basic health care for access to a doctor, that there could be terminally ill people in this country who lose their health care and die at our, on our watch. The constant attacks on, our, on women and women's reproductive rights. Muslim ban one, Muslim ban two, Muslim ban three. We're at four right now, if anyone's counting. Who's heard of black identity extremists? So the Department of Justice created a new category now of people that they want to zone in on and focus on. Anybody in this room who believes in black liberation, who believes in the rights of black people, that black people should be treated as whole people, and those who support those movements are going to be subject to, we can argue COINTELPRO 2.0, I'll argue 3.0, being criminalized for standing up for the dignity and respect of black communities. In the past 10 months, we dropped the mother of all bombs. I don't like to say mother and bombs in the same sentence, but that's what they call it. That happened in the last 10 months. 200 Iraqi civilians killed in the deadliest airstrike since 2003. Recently, the Palestinians went to the International Criminal Court to provide evidence to hold Israeli officials accountable for war crimes and violation of human rights. And the response that our country has, a country that apparently says we stand for human rights, and anybody who's a supporter of human rights should support holding anybody accountable who violates international human law. The US response is to threaten to close the Palestinian mission offices in Washington, DC. I mean, I could go on, you know, what about in the past 10 months, we still allow a sexual predator reign in the most powerful office of this land. As we hear a conversation, one after the other, of powerful men in this country accused of sexual assault and worse, 
I'm all about that. Let's hold them accountable and let them know very clearly that we will not stand for that. But it seems pretty hypocritical for me to go after every other powerful man and not the man that's sitting in the most powerful seat in the world. So that's what we're dealing with right now. And I can list other things. You know, you have the legalization of LG, the, the legalized discrimination of LGBTQ people at the hands of our attorney general, who was too racist to be a judge, but apparently well qualified to be the top cop of the nation. I mean, these are things, my dear sisters and brothers, that we just have to sit with. And it's just, I don't know, and maybe it's just me, but I'm just having a hard time. I'm, I'm, I'm losing hope because I don't understand how we found ourselves in this situation. So 16, 17 years ago, I was um, a young person. And I was running around talking about dismantling white supremacy. And people said to me, you're radical. Stop saying that. No one's going to take you seriously. White supremacy, you're going to upset a lot of people. People are going to think you're talking about white people. Linda, you're never going to make it. Stop being so ragtag and radical. You know, you got to get into the mainstream. And then a few months ago, some white guy showed up in Charlottesville with tiki torches. And everybody all of a sudden was like, let's end white supremacy. And I reflected on that. I said, why is it OK now, 17 years later? And by the way, people have been talking about ending white supremacy for a long time. I'm just talking about myself. And I reflected, and I said, why is it that now it's cool? Everybody's saying, let's end white supremacy. Even the Republicans are saying, let's end white supremacy. And then that's when I thought it was a problem. And I said, maybe it's because I wasn't explaining white supremacy right. Maybe, maybe we weren't articulating what white supremacy actually feels like, and what it looks like, and how it manifests in the communities that we come from. Because oftentimes when we find ourselves in these places, you know, in these academic conferences, even in activist conferences, we intellectualize everything. We want to have intellectual conversations about concepts or terms like white supremacy without actually connecting those terms in the way that they actually impact people in their communities. So for me, what white supremacy always looked like was the killing of unarmed black people at the hands of law enforcement. That was white supremacy for me. Cops who got off and were killing people in communities across the, this country with impunity. It also looked like the deportation, deportations of thousands of immigrants every day. And yes, too, under the Obama administration. It looked like the exploitation of our workers. It looks like gentrification. It looks like an 80% Congress full of white men who are trying to make decisions on your behalf and my behalf. It looks like a lack of diversity in America's largest corporations and in newsrooms. It looks like better schools in affluent neighborhoods and in white neighborhoods. It looked like voter suppression to me. It looked like mass incarceration. So this idea that white supremacy for people meant the Ku Klux Klan, that's not what white supremacy means to me. It's not white men in Charlottesville. They can march all they want in Charlottesville. They can buy as many tiki torches as they want. They got freedom to protest, that's cool. But the direct impact that, the, that white supremacy has had at the hands of a system, systematic racist system is what I care about and what I mean when we say, and when I say, let's dismantle white supremacy. And I've been struggling and wondering to myself as I marched with young people in 2015, mostly formerly incarcerated and young black and brown people, 
after the murder of Eric Garner in Staten Island, sisters and brothers, we all watched. It was on video. You all watched. You watched the white cop choke a black father and black grandfather. And, and, and Eric Garner said, I can't breathe 11 times in that video. Not once, not twice, not three times, 11 times. And that cop had no compassion in him to just a little bit, just let go a little bit so that Eric Garner could still be here with us today. And some young people said, I got an idea. No one cares about us. No one cares that Eric Garner was killed. Nobody cares about my friend Ray Ray who was killed three months ago. Nobody cares about this and that. We gotta do something to bring attention to this because this is wrong. So we said, what do you wanna do? They said, we wanna walk from Staten Island to Washington, D.C. I said, do you know that Staten Island to Washington, D.C. is 250 miles? Do you know that you have to walk through five states to get there? They said they didn't care. They wanted to do something that was so out of the ordinary that would force people to pay attention and say, why in the hell would these kids be marching for nine days to Washington, D.C.? Why would they do that? So that they can bring attention to the issues that they have seen plaguing their communities and most of us turned a blind eye. Where were the faith people? Where were the clergy that were marching with us for nine days? that slept in the basements of union buildings, and yes, there were people of faith who welcomed us in their churches, but guess what? Some of them got backlash for letting us stay in their churches, letting the radical activists sleep on their pews or in the mosques that we visited. And there are superstar people in the faith community, including my very dear friends, and I'm very proud of Dr. Katherine Henderson and Reverend Peter Heltzel and the Christian theologians right now, by the way, while we're sitting in here, who signed the Boston Declaration for those prophetic Christians who are following Jesus, the Jesus that I know, that I learned about, and are standing against Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bigotry literally on the streets of Boston right now as we sit in this room together, and I want to hold them up for the courageousness that they show every single day. But I want to see all of my sisters and brothers in faith in this moment on these streets. And I reflect and I say, why? What, what, what does their God teach? I thought their God was my God. I thought that Jesus was an organizer, that he was an activist, that he stood up for the most marginalized people. And I struggle with that, and young people in the movement struggle for that, and a lot of people of faith and clergy always ask me, they say, Linda, we're losing the young people. The young people are not sitting in our churches and in our synagogues and in our mosques. And I say, is that a question for the young people or is that a question for you? Why are those young? Because the young people see the urgency is on the streets and they see God everywhere. They, I believe that when I am at a front line of a protest, risking my life for what I believe in, God is watching over me. And that's young people believe that prayer is also prayer, praying with their feet. Maybe there's something we could learn from them about the power of God and what it means to be a whole person in this moment. 
I often hear this conversation about extremism, and I hear it literally, I heard it all over the convention. And I get in trouble a lot, and I'm okay with that. And I think my calling is to challenge us to think about things in different ways. I don't accept the narrative that has been given to me. I listen, I hear it, but if it doesn't sit right with me, I gotta understand why it doesn't. The way that we've had a conversation about extremism in this country is that we have connected extremism to religion. I don't believe that's the conversation that needs to happen. When you have a conversation about extremism, there's a couple of ways that we need to talk about it. First of all, when we, when we mean extremism, who in fact are we actually talking about? 98.7% of the time, we're talking about extremism in Muslims and Islam. That's just the fact of the matter. But for me, I'm a radical activist. And what does radical mean? Because that's also a term that has been taken from us and I'm taking it back. Radical means to get to the root of the problem. Look it up, that's what the, that's what the dictionary says. And I wanna get to the root of the problem. The root of the problem of extremism right here in the United States of America and the extremism that we see from groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda and other groups in the world, Christian militias in Africa, like I could go on. That when we have a conversation about extremism, it cannot be disconnected from geopolitics. It cannot be disconnected from other social factors that cause people to engage in forms of extremism. And if we leave the conversation to be just about, well, these people are extreme because they're using extreme parts of their religion to engage in those acts of violent extremism, we're never gonna get to eradicate the problem of extremism and violent extremism. And I've said this about groups like ISIS. I never heard of ISIS seven years ago. Anybody ever, when, when did ISIS show up into the, into the conversation? Islam's been around for what, five, 600 years, plenty of centuries for the Islamic scholars can correct me. There was no ISIS seven, eight years ago. Where did ISIS show, where, where did they come from? What were the factors that created a violent, barbaric group like ISIS? If in fact Islam is what is, what is making them into extremists, why wasn't there ISIS four or 500 years ago? So I think it's important for us to have these whole conversations and challenge one another because you cannot eradicate groups like ISIS if we don't understand exactly how they got there. And what we're doing is we're creating a conversation about violent extremism, connecting it only to Muslims in America, and it is very apparent to me as a Muslim anytime there is a terrorist attack in this country. Immediately, guy is a Muslim, by default, it's a terrorist attack. He's white, we have a whole other couple of categories we gotta go through before we get to the conclusion. First, is he mentally ill? Did he have trouble growing up? What happened to him? Is he divorced? Did he have family problems? What caused him to get on that? We use every social factor available to us to determine whether this particular act was a terrorist attack. But for the Muslim, nothing else matters. He's Muslim, terrorism. We move on from that. That is wrong and actually has perpetuated the actual discrimination and vilification and dehumanization of Muslims in this country. And we play into that because we don't challenge the narrative. 
And if we are going to talk about extremism, I'm cool with that. Why don't we talk about white supremacy and violent extremism that's happening at the hands of white men in this country? And that's a conversation no one wants to have because it makes people feel uncomfortable. But it's the fact of the matter, it's the truth, it's what we're watching around us. We were not moved by almost 50 people or more who were killed in Las Vegas just a few weeks ago. Or the gunman just five days ago who was in California, thank God for school shutdowns and lockdowns or more little elementary school kids would have been killed at the hands of this gunman. No one wants to talk about guns in this country. God forbid anybody takes away anybody's guns, but plenty of people dying every day and getting killed, it's cool with everybody, even faith communities. So my question to all of us and the things that I need to reflect on personally and I want you to reflect on is how do we show up in this moment? How are we trying to show up? And people oftentimes, instead of going with your heart, going to or going with what your faith teaches you to do, we worry about everything else. I'm a living example of someone who is moved by their faith, someone who is critiqued, listen to me here, all the way to the left. I didn't start with the right. All the way from the left to all the way to the right and everybody in between. And I actually don't care. And I don't care because I know that truth is what we need in this moment and that people need to be challenged in this moment. And I will, and if I have to be the one to challenge us all, to challenge my own Muslim community, to challenge communities of faith, to challenge progressives, to challenge those on the right, I'm willing to do that. Because this conference is about the most vulnerable. And when I wake up every morning, my question to myself is, what am I doing today to alleviate suffering and pain that is around me? I don't say, before I do that, I wonder what the alt-right is going to think about it. I wonder what the progressives are gonna think of me today. I don't really care what people think. And for those of us who are people of faith and in particular those of us who believe in God, I care what God thinks. Because one thing that is inevitable for all of us in this room, whether you're Republicans or Democrats, progressives, neoliberals, whatever, wherever you see yourself on the spectrum, we're all gonna die. All of us, every single one of us. I'm going to die, my opposition is going to die, everybody's going to die. And I believe that we're all going to meet our Lord. And our Lord's going to ask us. He's going to say, where were you when unarmed black people were being killed on the streets of your communities? Where were you when families were being separated? Where were you when people in your country were dying because they didn't have access to health care? Where were you when your nation is the holder of the largest prison population in the world by far. Where were you when you were wearing clothing made in modern day slavery at the hands of mass incarceration? What were you doing? What were you saying? So, my opposition says a lot of things about me. And I'm all right with that. They say I'm anti-American. They say I'm some radical Islamic supremacist, except that if I was anywhere on the border of Syria, I would be the first person to be executed by a group like ISIS. They say I'm not a patriot. 
that if I don't love my country, if I don't like it here, why don't I just go back to where I came from? I came from Brooklyn, just so folks are not clear about that. And I'm gonna say this in this room. I don't take for granted that this country opened its doors to immigrants and refugees and including my own Palestinian immigrant family members who, and my parents specifically who chose to come here from living under military occupation. And because of that and their choices, I get to stand here at the stage and share my voice with all of you. I don't take that for granted. And I'm grateful that my parents made that choice. One of the reasons that they call me anti-American is because I engage in dissent every single day. And my definition of being a proud American and a patriot is that dissent is the highest form of patriotism in my opinion and in the opinions of many before me. So they also say I'm anti-American because they say that I'm stuck in the past. And for me as a Muslim American in this moment at a time where I find myself belonging to a directly impacted community, I have to be rooted in this history of this country. Because we live in a country that welcomed refugees and immigrants and people fleeing religious persecution and political persecution and war and conflict and poverty. But we also live in a country that did really horrible things to people. And they hate me because I remind us every day of that. Sisters and brothers, we live in a country that was founded on the extermination of indigenous people. It's not my opinion. It's history. It's facts. We're also a country that was founded on the enslavement of black people, 25% of whom were Muslims. We're also a country that segregated people by race. And I will argue with you in 2017 that we still do that. We segregate people by race and in some instances race and class. Boston's a great example, Hartford, Connecticut, Detroit, Brooklyn. Brooklyn, where I'm from, has the most segregated public school system in the country. We're also a country who deported two million Mexicans in Operation Wetback. So when people tell me we can't do mass deportations all at the same time, Operation Wetback. We're also a country during you know, the elections, people said, you know, Donald Trump said, complete shutdown of Muslim immigration, and everyone said, Linda, they can't do that. And I said, well, maybe, maybe not. But we did pass a federal piece of legislation called the Chinese Exclusion Act, where we decided that a whole group of people from one country were not allowed to come to the United States of America. We're, we're capable. It happened. We also interned Japanese Americans. And in particular, Japanese American internment really moves me in a way, as a, and, and speaks to me as a Muslim American. And, and I'll say, and I'll tell you this. You know, when Japanese internment happened, by the way, 75 years ago is not that long ago. And there are people who still live amongst us, including former Congressman Mike Honda, who was a child who was in these camps. And the way it happened wasn't that a guy woke up one morning and said, I have a dream. I had a dream and I got a great idea. What if we went around and rounded up all the Japanese Americans and another guy was there and was like, brother, that's brilliant. That's just what we're going to do. That's not what happened. What happened was there was years of propaganda 
against Japanese Americans. And what we said was at the time, the Japanese were not to be trusted. That the Japanese were not capable of being loyal to these United States of America. That we had to watch ourselves from these other people. And we basically labeled them the enemies within. And the propaganda was so good that when the date came that they decided to intern Japanese Americans, what happened? The American people turned the blind eye and they allowed it to happen. So now we fast forward 75 years to 2017. Who are they saying the exact? You would literally think they picked up the same book and took out Japanese and just threw Muslims in there. Muslims are not to be trusted. Islam and democracy or Islam and the Constitution are incompatible. Muslims can't be loyal. Muslims are not to be trusted. The Muslims are the enemies within. We must monitor the mosques. We must, we must, we must. Same narrative, literally. And the propaganda has been going on for at least the past 16 years since the horrific attacks of 9-11. So then during the elections, we heard things like the Muslim registry. And you know, everybody got bold. They said, Muslim registry? Not on my watch. Even folks in my opposition were like, I will register as a Muslim. Right? Folks remember that? You know what I was thinking as an organizer? I said, oh. I said, so now you all feel bold because a bunch of crazy Republicans are talking about registering the Muslims. I said, in my mind, I was thinking, where in the hell were you in 2003 when the Department of Homeland Security did create a Muslim registry program? When they called upon Muslim men who lived in this country who were over the age of 16, were not US citizen or legal permanent residents, and called them to federal offices around the country. About 10% of the 110,000 Muslim men who registered during the special call and registration program, guess what? were put on deportation proceedings and separated from their families. How many terrorists did we find in this special call and registration program using your taxpayer dollars? Zero, none. We terrorized communities. We had chaos in our communities. People were like, do we register? Do we don't? Is this around? Are they gonna round us up? Are they gonna put us in camps? What is this program all about? Children crying for their fathers, for their brothers, mothers for their sons. I heard nothing. I had a couple of allies. We had a couple of folks in the country, ACLU type folks and people that joined in. But the faith community, silent. When people were talking about, and I remember Ted Cruz was saying, we're going to monitor all the mosques. That's what we have to do. Everyone's like, how do you do that? Can't monitor all the mosques. How do you monitor all a, a whole group of people from one faith? But Muslims live in every community. I was like, really, people? I was like, we're already under unwarranted surveillance. The Associated Press in 2011 came out with an expose of secret documents leaked from the largest police force in the country that were engaging in unwarranted surveillance of Muslim communities, 250 mosques, our bookstores, our cafes, where our children practice soccer for their soccer leagues, our MSAs, our Islamic schools. They went as far as going out of their jurisdiction in Connecticut and Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Faith communities, silent. What would have happened if that wasn't an, a, a program that was, or if it was a program that was exposed 
engaging in unwarranted surveillance of evangelical communities, or of Jewish communities, or of Hindu temples? Would there have been a different outcry, or is it because the propaganda is so good about the Muslims, we chose to sit back and be silent in those moments? This is the type of rage that I have in my body. The hypocrisy that we have when we feel there's a moment that we could be bold. Sisters and brothers, there requires no moral courage for you to stand up to the Trump administration. In fact, if you're not, I got questions. It really doesn't require moral courage to call out white supremacists. It really doesn't. It's pretty clear to me. We even, again, we even have Republicans who legislate against us every day who, have, who are all of a sudden being like, yep, white supremacy ain't cool. Not down with that. So we really have to ask ourselves how many things have happened, not just on our historical watch as a country, but now on this watch today in 2017. And one of the things that moves me about it is that one day I was in a university in the Midwest. And a young Muslim boy stood up and he asked the question, he says, Sister Linda, who was living in this country at the time of Japanese internment? Who were those people that were living here and allowed for their Japanese American neighbors to be ripped apart and hauled off to camps on this US soil? And he abruptly sat down. And I thought to myself, I don't know. A few days later, I'm in my office in Brooklyn and it came to me. I said, I know exactly who those people were. They were good people. They were probably people who said, you know what, this doesn't seem right. It doesn't feel right. Probably even watched it to, through their kitchen blinds, right? And saw their Japanese American neighbors get dragged off and it just didn't sit well with them. But you know what they did? They closed the blind and they went back into their living rooms and they did nothing. And I always ask myself as a Muslim American, I say, what makes me more honorable than a Japanese American? What makes me better than a Japanese American? Do, did, do, Japanese Ameri did I, do I love my children more than Japanese Americans love theirs? Do I love my work more than they love theirs? Do I love my communities more than they love theirs? Do I love my religious institutions more than they love theirs? There's nothing about me that makes me more honorable than a Japanese American. So what type of reassurance do I have living in these United States of America, rooted in a history, living as a Muslim for the past 16 years, what makes me reassured that we wouldn't be capable as a nation to commit another horrible atrocity, especially under an overtly racist, Islamophobic regime that we have right now? I don't have that reassurance. I fight for it every day. My role is to give hope to my community, to teach them how to build and organize and mobilize and engage in solidarity in hopes that that may be the way but I'm not always 100% reassured. One thing I'll say about faith communities, and it's been used against us in the movement by people of faith, <clears throat> is they always wanna use Dr. Martin Luther King as an example. And in fact, they use Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement against us. They will say to us, what are you doing? That's not how Dr. Martin Luther King would have done it. That's not this, and Dr. Martin Luther King, I said, one day I remember, I said, I said I'm, I'm sorry. I think that we have a different understanding of who Dr. Martin Luther King was and what he was doing. And for me, that is the most problematic conversation in the movement where people are trying to use historical figures who, is, who are risking their lives for the very things that we risk our lives for right now, who are people of faith, 
Dr. Martin Luther King was clergy, and he wasn't this peaceful guy whose mission was to bring white people and black people together. That's not what Dr. Martin Luther King was doing. And people of faith who showed up, white pastors and Jewish rabbis who showed up, it wasn't because Dr. Martin Luther King was going around the country knocking on their doors. They were moved. They were moved by their faith to come and show up in the civil rights movement. They believed in the principles and values of the civil rights movement. So they were moved, they were called to come, many of whom risked their lives and in fact lost their lives and were called to come and be in solidarity with Dr. Martin Luther King and the larger civil rights movement. But what we fail, fail to remember about Dr. Martin Luther King, no one wants to talk about this part, is Dr. Martin Luther King was called a communist. J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director at the time, labeled him one of the most dangerous men in America. He wrote you letters from the Birmingham jail. He was a victim of police brutality. The organizations that he organized with at the time were blacklisted by the US government. So I don't go around caring what people got to say about me right now, because history already tells me what's going to happen 50 years from now. We're going to all be walking down Colin Kaepernick Boulevard. And I hope that you were with Colin Kaepernick in 2017. The reason why I say this is because I get really, it bothers me when I see people in the opposition, those who are opposed to our values, our principles, our whole humanity, our dignity, who want to quote Dr. Martin Luther King in January. So when your opposition is quoting people who are your heroes, you want to question what they know about them. And they, we in this country oftentimes want to whitewash history so we can make it convenient for us. I want to ask you a question. Why is it that we want to let our opposition define for us how we fight for our dignity and respect? I don't let anybody tell me how to fight for my people. I decide how to fight for my people. I don't need anybody to tell me what time I do it or Linda, it's not the right time right now. Every time is the right time to stand for justice. And in this country, we are told when the right time is. Every time is the right time. Not next week. Let's wait till January, let's wait after the budget, let's wait till after elections or before elections. Don't mess this up, don't mess that up. People are dying in our streets. People's families are being separated and broken. Our religious institutions are being vandalized. We are being terrorized in our very own country. So every time is the right time. And I will not allow moderates to tell me how in this moment we need to show up. This is a moment for radical organizing, radical love and compassion, and if you truly, truly believe in God and his creations, then I hope that you know that God wants us to love and uplift and protect all of his creations. I will say in this room something else, and I'm going to say this here for the record. I find myself in a lot of controversies that should not be a controversy. A couple of months ago, I found myself in a controversy. They were literally calling for arresting me for treason. It was really bad. And the conversation was because I dared to practice my religion wholly in this country. I stood in a room like this one, all Muslim audience, and I said and told a story. I said that there was a man once who asked our beloved Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him. What is the best form of jihad or struggle? And I said that our beloved Prophet Muhammad responded by saying, that the best form of jihad or struggle is a word of truth to a tyrannical leader. That's what I said. 
I will not allow my opposition to tell me what words I can use and what words I can't use. I will not allow my opposition to tell me how to practice my faith, how to speak, when to speak, to who to speak to. If this truly is the land of religious freedom, then I should be able to show up in every way and define my religion for myself. As long as we are not imposing our religions on others, as long as we are not engaging in injustice against one another, we should be left to practice our religion freely. And I will reclaim my religion, I will reclaim my language, and I will not be silenced nor intimidated by anybody who wants to take that away from me. I'm calling on all of you academics, people who lead congregations, people who are members of congregations, that we need you now and we need your prophetic voices. It's not enough to pray in the church, in the mosque, in the synagogue, in the temple. It's just not enough. And my faith teaches me, trust in God, but tie your camel. Islam is very practical. God is great all the time, but God did not tell me to sit down in the corner and wait for some things to happen. He gave me knowledge. He gave me health. He gave me arms and legs and eyes. He gave me things and blessings for me to use. And this moment that we are living in, I believe wholeheartedly, is a test. He, has, he is testing our commitment to him. He is testing our commitment to justice and to our faith. And this is a moment where we all need to stand up. That may mean that one day on Sunday, you might say, you know what? Instead of meeting you, me at church, why don't you meet me at the food pantry? Instead of me meeting me on the, at the synagogue, why don't you meet me at this rally standing with a mother who just lost her child to police violence? Hey folks, instead of meeting me at the temple, why don't we go visit our Muslim sisters and brothers down the street and tell them how much we love them and how we will stand with them no matter what happens? I promise you God will be proud. I'm asking you to be able to articulate to your congregations, to the students that beyond the intellectual conversation on theology, that things need to be tangible for people. Show up, give your resources, stay informed. Let people be able to touch the things that you want them to do. Praying is important. I pray every day. But I think prayer that is not coupled with action is irrelevant to me. It just it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't move me. It doesn't it doesn't move the moment that we are in. So how can we pray to God and ask Him for guidance and and be rooted in our faith, but at the same time also acting our faith out in public? And I want you to leave here knowing that that there are a lot of young people who want to come back to our communities, to our faith communities. There's a lot of young people who want to be in mosque. They want to be at the synagogue. They want to be at church. They want to be in the temple. But what do we have to do to create those welcoming, non-judgmental spaces? The spaces that don't tell and point out the kid and say, hey, you weren't here last Sunday. I didn't see you. That's okay. Maybe he just wants to come one Sunday a month. Or a space that allows people to show up in all of them. It's important for us to start thinking about what our responsibility is to create the spaces that welcome all of us. And I will end by sharing something with you 
It's another recent controversy that I've been a part of and I want to share it in the space because it actually relates to something that Dr. Eddie talked about earlier. To reflect on this, because it's a conversation that's happening across our country. Intersectionality, it doesn't mean Jewish people, Muslim people, you know, this people, that people organizing together. That's actually not what intersectionality means, if that's just to be clear. Intersectionality is the idea that we organize at the intersections of oppression. So you can't dismantle anti-black racism without dismantling xenophobia and homophobia and transphobia and Islamophobia and sexism, right? That the, all these oppressions need to be part of one movement together because we are all impacted at the different intersections of these oppressions. And I am a Muslim American. And I am a Palestinian American. And I believe that anti-Semitism is real in this country. And it is rearing its ugly head in a way that we really haven't seen in a long time. And people are being really unapologetic about it, right? They're walking around in public without their white hoods saying, Jews can't replace us. And we all need to be concerned with that. And we have to figure out how, when we are talking about ending racism and all these phobias, that we bring in this conversation about how we too have to combat anti-Semitism. And I say this to my Jewish sister and brothers in this room, many of whom I've been organizing with for the past 17 years. And I want you to reflect, and those who have conversations with their Jewish congregations, their families, or even Christians and other people of faith who have friends in the Jewish community. It is a disservice in this moment for us to say that those on the front lines of the movement who are critics of the state of Israel, me being one of them, who is also equally a critic of the US government, that's me too, are anti-Semites. It is a disservice to Jewish communities who are directly impacted by anti-Semitism. And when we in the progressive movement are at the front lines, we are fighting for you too. And the reason I bring this up is because we are engaging in a conversation in New York City on November 28th at the New School in an all-Jewish panel that is moderated by Amy Goodman and I as the resident Palestinian Muslim on that panel. And I'm not even there because I'm Palestinian and I'm Muslim. I'm there as a progressive leader in this resistance to talk directly, not to opposition. I'm not talking to right-wing Zionists. I'm not talking to alt-right. I'm talking to the progressive left because anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are not exclusive to the right. It also shows up in the progressive left. I've seen it. It has come up in front of me. So what I'm saying to all of you is that in this moment, as we're fogged by our own pain and our own trauma that some of us have experienced from generation to generation, that we get some clarity in this moment and realize who is with us and who is against us. And those of us who are Palestinian, who are critics of the state of Israel, and I believe wholeheartedly we have every right to be and very valid reasons to be, that we do not equate critiquing the state of Israel with true, dangerous anti-Semitism that it's rearing its ugly head in these United States of America. And that no matter what, we are in this together. And guess what? By default, by default, as we are combating 
anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, all these racisms, guess what happens? We even protect the opposition. They won't realize that until later. But, but even, even as we disagree, when people of color, when the most marginalized people in this country are at the front lines, guess what we do? We fight for everybody. When we say justice for all, we mean justice for all people. I'm calling on you to join us on the front lines. I want you to use your authority, your moral authority in this moment to take us to that higher ground. That this country needs your conversation, they need your voices in this moment. As we have people using religion to defend sexual assault of children. When we have people using religion to legislate against women and women's bodies, and I'm not talking about places like Saudi Arabia or Muslim regimes. I'm talking right here in these United States of America. I'm hopeful, which is why I'm a Muslim activist, which is why I'm on the front lines. And I hope that you are looking forward 100 years from now and making sure that you are not part of a conversation that people are having saying, what in the hell were people of faith doing 100 years ago? Where were you when there was an authoritarian regime? Where were you when these atrocities were happening? And the story that I want to be a part of is people saying, wow, those courageous people of faith that used God for good, that stood up to tyranny and stood with and for the most marginalized communities. That is the story that I want to be a part of, and I hope that you join me in being part of the making of history that we are doing in this moment. Thank you.